Welcome to the Learn Stage Lighting Podcast. This is the show where newcomers and professionals alike come to learn more about stage lighting. And now your host, David Henry. Hey everybody and welcome to the show. I'm David, like he said, and this is the Learn Stage Lighting Podcast. I'm super excited for today. We've got a lot of questions to answer for y'all. Um, we've got a Patreon update. We've got uh, some interesting news, and I'm excited to just share it all with you. I hope you enjoyed um, our last episode with Seth Shoemaker, talking about installs, what to do, what not to do. I thought it was really insightful, really good. Seth's been a, a good friend for a long time, like we mentioned there, with a big gap in the middle. Um, but, you know, just really knowledgeable guy. I appreciate having him on to talk about installs. Now, today, we're going to focus on your questions. But before we get there, I've got a couple quick reminders. One thing first is Patreon, guys. It's a great way for you to be able to support this podcast. Starting here in August, I'm bouncing down to two podcasts until I hit my first Patreon goal, which is just $150. So if we can get that, that'll help me to be able to produce this podcast four times a month. And also, as we continue to hit more goals, I'll be able to upgrade gear and bring you a better experience overall. Because unfortunately, you know, as much as I love to do this as a passion project and this podcast is enjoyable, uh, it it doesn't pay for itself. And, and, you know, it's not just my time in front of the microphone here. Of course, I own the microphone, the audio gear, the software to edit things, but there's also a plugin that masters things. There's an awesome assistant named Kari who goes in every week, listens to this, types up the show notes, and publishes the podcast. And all of this takes time, takes money. And so I'm asking for you guys, the loyal podcast listeners, to help fund this by going to learnstagelighting.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It's like patron, but there's an extra E in the end. And it's just a great way for you to patronize the show. You'll see that in the show notes as well. Now, today in lighting news, I was just reading, this is actually kind of anti-news. No, it's definitely news. I was reading um, Lighting and Sound America. It's a free trade magazine that you can get at lightingandsoundamerica.com, all spelled out if you're uh, in America, of course. And they had a really interesting article in here, and this is something I've been thinking about lately, actually, and so I thought I would bring it on. And so I'm going to call this little news segment, The Parkan May It Rest in Peace. If you guys are newer to lighting or, you know, you haven't been around here for too long, then you're probably familiar with the word PAR. And you'll see LED PARs out there, you know, PAR-type lights um, that are advertised. And you might say, well, what what makes a PAR a PAR? Well, if you were to look at the modern options, you say, well, it's a light with a circle lens of various sizes, right? Well, no, actually, it's 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 actually um, there's more meaning than that. And truth be told, our today's LED pars, as they call them, are not even pars at all. So um, this article is actually really interesting. It goes into the history of the par and into the the history of lighting as we know it and concert lighting as we know it today, and and how it all came to be um, focused around the par can, not around moving lights or anything else like that. So a par. For those of you guys who aren't familiar, um, especially if you're newer to lighting, you didn't use these like I did when I first started in this business, it stands for Parabolic Alumni Reflector. Now, that may sound fancy, but that just means that the reflector, um, the, what is behind the lamp that makes the brightness, is parabolic in shape. It's a parabola. Try to remember those from math class. 
or basically, you know, kind of like the St. Louis Gateway Arch upside down. It's alumni, so that means it's shiny from aluminum, and it reflects. And so PAR lamps are what goes into a PAR can, and they're a simple all-in-one unit that contains generally, um, in, a, in a true PAR, contains um, not only the lamp, the filament, but also the lens on the front and the reflector on the back. It's all within one, one housing that you buy and you replace when it goes out, okay? So PAR lamps um, come in various different sizes. They go all the way down from like PAR 16s, which are very small, up to PAR 64s, which are 8 inches across. Now, you might notice the, the number 64 and 8, and you know that relation 8 goes 8 times into 64. Well, um, the, it goes the same way with any other PAR size. So PAR sizes are actually measured, the lamp, or the bulb, as, as they might be called if you're not familiar with our industry terminology of lamp, um, they're measured in eighth inches. And so a PAR 64 is eight inches, a 56 is seven, and a PAR 16 all the way down at the bottom is just two inches wide, the bulb itself, the lamp, okay? And so um, this, for the longest time in lighting, the PAR can was what we used for, like, everything. Because they're inexpensive, they're bright, and they give you a decent beam of oval light. And so, uh, if, if you are looking for more in information, if you thought, okay, this piqued my interest, David, go check out the article in Lighting and Sound America. We will try our best to find it for the show notes. I know I didn't look it up ahead of time, because I've got the paper copy right in front of me. But it really goes into detail about why the PAR came around how we uh, indoctrinated it into our lighting world, because as with pretty much anything in the lighting industry, we don't come up with this stuff because our industry is so small. And that's especially true. That was especially true at the beginning of the stage lighting industry, where it wasn't an industry at all. And so you had to borrow things and you still, they still do that today. The manufacturers do. You have to borrow technologies and products from other industries and adapt them for, our own, which is the lighting world. So PAR, it's an interesting thing, um, but we're saying rest in peace to it because um, unfortunately it's going away. Um, all the, I believe all the major manufacturers now, such as uh, Osram, Sylvania, GE, um, which might be the same company as Sylvania, um, they've announced that they've stopped making the PAR lamps or they've announced that they're going to stop making them. Because um, at the end of the day, these things aren't that efficient, unfortunately, and the demand for them has gone way down because LED fixtures have gotten so good that it usually doesn't make financial sense to keep using PAR cans. After all, um, part of the inefficiency of the PAR is that because you buy everything, you buy the filament, you buy the lens, and you buy the reflector all when you buy the lamp, it means, you know, they're they're kind of expensive. They're like 20 bucks a pop for, for a lot of these lamps. And um, it, it's just not worth it when you could get like a Source 4 PAR, you know, an ETC Source 4 PAR, where the lens and the reflector are separate from the lamp. So it's not truly a true PAR. Well, it kind of is. Um, but we won't dive into details there. You can get one of those and the lamps for those are like, you know, 12 to 14 dollars i think so uh you just can't compete especially when you got a lot of lights and unfortunately um the pars are going away there's still third parties um various no-name manufacturers that are putting out par lamps but the word on the street and everything i'm seeing suggests that they're just not as reliable 
as the the name brands and and that typically happens with with lamps that unfortunately aren't made by the big names in the business they're just they never have the level of quality control and uh just overall quality that the big guys present so may it rest in peace i have burned myself so many times on park hands putting colored gels in front of them focusing on stages and um i just did a rig actually the other week with with some pars um, last week and uh, lit a band with them and and it was fun but um, yeah their their day is ending so today we're answering your questions guys and I, I gotta remember um, our patrons here we've got Craig Taz and also Kristen thank you guys so much for supporting us on Patreon hopefully we'll get some more of you guys soon here and um, you know just want to uh, thank them and answer their questions first. So, uh, Taz wrote in first on Patreon. Um, that's going to be one of the, the benefits of the patrons is that, you know, I'm going to put their questions first. And if there's some questions that I don't get to that were in my inbox for today's episode before I run out of time and my voice goes away, then that's where we're going to stop. Um, so the patrons are going to get, you know, first, um, dibs at the questions on the podcast. And I think that's only fair for the people that support our show. So with that said, Taz says, uh, several years ago, our band experienced significant ground loop interference on our audio, our PA rig. And the issue was sorted um, when a tech said, hey, don't plug, don't plug stuff in everywhere. Okay, don't connect your stuff um, into all sorts of different outlets. Since then, we, um, we've kind of, we used just a limited number of power sockets, uh, but we don't want to overload our circuits. So how do we calculate? Here's the questions the load that we're putting on a circuit, and should we run our lights on completely different circuits to avoid interference, or does that matter? Thanks, Taz. All right, I understand you're not a qualified electrician. Well, I'm not a licensed electrician. Um, I could be considered probably a qualified electrician, but I'm interested in my perspective. So first question, how do we calculate the load that we're putting on an electrical circuit? Well, it's actually really simple, okay? So no matter where in the world you are, um, power is made up of the same um, three attributes, really, that you can measure. You've got watts that a given um, item is going to take. You've got volts. And you've got amps. Now, here in the U.S., and I know this varies a little bit for you, um, we run at 120 volts, right? So 120 volts. Um, and so... That is the common denominator, the thing that's never going to change. Now, wattage and amps are going to vary against the volts. So if I, for example, have, say, an LED light or something else that takes 60 watts um, at 120 volts, that, boom, 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 is one amp. Now, how did I figure that out? No, actually, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's a, it's a half amp. So how we calculate these things, basically, the, the quick and easy calculation is you take your watts and divide it by your volts, okay? And so 60 divided by 120 in, in the U.S. here means that it's half an amp, okay? That's how much power that particular device will take at maximum. And you can find this number um, on the sticker, on the label of whatever it is that you're using, right? Usually it's well labeled. It says, you know, max, um, you know, max power this much. And, and you know, that's how much it is. And so you, the first thing you want to do, um, sometimes it's going to, it'll measure that in amps already on the device, 
based on uh, whatever the power is in your in your country. Sometimes it's just going to have the watts, um, so you'll have to do that math based on your voltage. But regardless, um, you then go in and you add up all those amp values. You say, okay, this takes this many amps, this takes this many amps, this takes this many amps. You add that all up, and then you look at how many amps can go into a given circuit of power. Now, here in the U.S., that's generally 20 amps, sometimes 15 amps. If it's a modern commercial building, um, such as a venue, it should be 20 amps, but sometimes older venues um, still have 15 amp stuff around. And in our houses, a lot of circuits are 15 amps, though in areas where there's higher draw, like our kitchens, they're 20 amps. And so you're on to the right place here um, in, in that you don't want to overload anything and you want to remain within 80% of the load rating. Now, the 80% rule, I just want to talk about that for a quick second. That's something that electricians encode use, and it's a good measure because the theory being that if you don't go above 80%, then you'll make sure you never overload your wire, even if you're a little bit wrong. And if you run everything at full all the time, uh, you're still going to have a safe buffer before anything would trip because if, um, if you're working and the voltage starts to drop, then the amperage actually goes up, okay? Because of how this, uh, because of how the math works. And so that 80% rule gives you a little bit of a buffer there. But when we're working with lighting and especially with audio gear, those numbers can be a little funky because the maximum that a, a given you know thing is going to use, the maximum amperage, um, is when it's at full. And you might never or rarely run all your lights at full, right? You may never, and this is where the um, contact an electrician um, disclaimer comes in here. Um, you know, with with sound stuff, you it's certainly very dynamic. So you know what you know the amplifiers and the speakers draw at maximum, but you're not unless it's like a DJ event where you're just pounding it constantly you're never going to run it at full for an extended period of time. And so um, the 80% rule, it's good to follow. But if you find yourself in a situation where you need to push you know, closer to, to loading that to full, just remember that most of your stuff, if you actually measured the amperage that it outputs when you're using it, is not going to touch that maximum very often. Maybe even never will touch that maximum or only when you start it up etc. So that's my little disclaimer there. Again, you know, if you really want to know, talk with an electrician, but, um, but, um, your second question there, Taz was, should we run our lights on completely different circuits to avoid interference or does it even matter? So with modern LEDs, Taz, um, you generally don't have any problem mixing audio and lighting power. It used to be that there could be issues with dimmers. When you have dimmers that are dimming conventional lights and audio equipment, you can really get some issues with some buzzes and some hums and things like that that are caused by the dimmers uh, dirtying up the power when they're on the same power together. But modern, you know, good dimmers, such as um, ETC, you know, racks, um, not the little dimmer packs, they're cheap, but, but a good modern dimmer could share power with audio. But regardless, with LEDs and moving lights and stuff like that, um, I really haven't seen any time where I've had to share power and it's ever been an issue. They they tend to be run pretty clean and not cause issues with the audio. So that's something that 
people used to do all the time. They used to say, hey, lights and sound got to be completely separate. And that was mostly for the dimmers. Today, that's not as applicable as it once was. Um, maybe not even applicable at all. But um, at the end of the day, um, I know your biggest deal here is you're trying to avoid the ground loops. And ground loops are a pretty complicated matter. I admit they fall more into audio than to lighting. But what a ground loop is, and hopefully um, somebody's listening, somebody might be listening that knows more about this than me, is basically you have two things that, two things on your stage that are connected to two different outlets, okay? So they have a different path to the electrical ground, which is in the electrical panel and then goes into the physical ground, you know, the dirt um, below you. So you've got two devices in your audio system that are plugged into different outlets. Then those two devices get connected by a low voltage cord, aka an audio signal cable or multiple cables. And when you connect them with those low voltage cords, they make a, a secondary path that also has a ground in it because the audio signal cable has a ground, okay? So when you do that, you now make literally a loop if you were to diagram it out. And sometimes some electricity um, flows around and starts spinning in circles around that loop. And that's when you get the dreaded hum or buzz, the ground loop. So um, lighting's really not going to bother you there. Generally not going to have anything that's going to cause ground loops with lighting. That's an audio issue. But um, that hopefully all that answers, all that rambling answers your questions. I think it did. Um, so yeah, thank you as well, Taz, for supporting us on Patreon. Craig writes in, and uh, he joined in on the base level. Thanks on Patreon. Thanks, Craig. Um, he's a hobbyist, reprising a hobby slash career from many decades ago. Um, lighting his first show in 1979 with good old slider dimmers. But now I have a small lighting rig of about 24 lights, mostly LED parts, but also some moving lights that he uses for some bands. Um, he's getting to know Onyx more and doing some great shows. Um, from what I can see, uh, bah, 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 bah. okay, so he's just saying, um, thanks for the good work, and I hope I get more patrons soon. Um, his suggestion, Craig's, is that he'd love to see videos of people running lights for actual live shows. Um, yes, I would love to do that. So here's, here's the path and why I would like to get there and why I haven't done that yet. Um, right now, you know, we're in stage lighting covers about three quarters of what I need in order to feed my family, um, keep a roof over their head and, you know, pay the bills. It's not quite all the way there yet. So when I do shows, um, those are usually corporate shows. And the reason why is I'm well connected in the corporate events world. And, you know, the, the money's good there. It's, it's, it's a good way that I can go in, design a show for a number of days, make a reasonable amount of money that I can then continue to pour into growing this business and feed my family with. Okay. Those gigs, unfortunately, um, are really under a, you know, no pictures, no video um, kind of disclosure because they contain, you know, various information um, about the corporates, etc. Even when there's a band, you know, I don't feel right taking video of it because there's a certain level of secrecy and a certain level of, um, you know, closure that these corporate companies want. They, they really don't want their meetings being videotaped and shared elsewhere, even if it's just the party night. And I want to respect that. So I do, because I lit, I lit a band last week, but it was at a corporate party. Um, 
And so, um, what I would love to do is either get myself in lighting more bands or go visit people locally who are lighting bands and, and talk to them and, and take footage of their shows. But again, that takes time. It takes money. And so we're getting there. I, I, I thank you um, for making the suggestion, Craig. I love it. It's something I'm definitely pursuing and definitely looking for towards as this thing continues to grow, but we're not quite there yet. So We'll be seeing that. We'll be talking about that, Craig. And I thank you so much for being a patron on Patreon because every little bit does help grow this thing and help pay for me to do cool stuff like that into the future. Awesome. Alvin writes in, Hey, David, I have a little question. I just need more explanation for the meaning of a DMX universe. Okay, Alvin. So the great thing about DMX and why we love DMX so much is because it's very simple. Okay, um, you can have 512 channels of lights that you connect to one universe. Okay, so what, what's a universe? Well, a universe is literally a separate DMX line, a separate set of 512 channels. Okay, that's that's literally all it is. It's, it's that simple. And so when you're working with a console, um, you're literally going to keep your DMX wiring coming out of that console completely separate for different universes. So you'll have on the back of a console or from a network node, you will have, um, you know, two different ports, DMX, you know, A or one and B or two, however they're labeled on your particular console. And then um, you will go ahead and you'll hook up the lights for universe A to that one to universe B or two to that one, and they'll be completely separate. So on each universe, there is going to be um, a DMX address for every one of those 512 channels. So, you know, regular DMX lights are not going to, um, they're not going to know a thing about universes. They don't understand that. All they know is address. And on universe one, on universe two, on universe three, there's 512 addresses, one through 512, okay? And you can put a light anywhere in those universes, in those addresses, rather. So the universe is really determined on where you plug your light into. Now, Alvin, as we get into um, more complex shows and more people use network DMX, like Artnet or SACN, you now have many universes coming out of a console via a network cable. At that point, when you're working with lights that either take that networked information directly or you're working with the nodes that convert that networked information into regular DMX, that is when you see the need to specify the universe number as well as the address. And um, even looking at the technology coming down the line into the future, there are some protocols and some people that are working on things that abolish the whole universe address setup completely because it's really not necessary as you get into the larger rigs. There's other ways that you can um, handle this stuff. Awesome. So that, I hope, answers your question. Alvin, it should. Uh, Clay writes in and says, I live in Nashville. Totally amateur lighting curiosity seeker. Awesome, Clay. I live in Nashville, too. Um, great to meet you. I am trying to learn how some of this software works and how to create minimal lighting scenes, etc., do you have recommendations for a good starter software or do they all work pretty much the same? All right, Clay. So the um, 
the simple uh, way to say this is, no, they don't all work the same. In fact, one thing I see a lot, and this might turn a rant into a rant about Facebook groups really fast if I don't watch myself, is someone like you who just wants to know more about lights goes onto a Facebook for lighting and they say, hey, I need a console. I need to control lights. What should I use? And one of the things that I've seen for a long time and one of the reasons this site really exists is that... um is that when you ask professionals as to what you should use, they're going to recommend a professional solution, okay? That's not necessarily a bad thing, but if you only need something really simple, then you don't necessarily want a professional solution because it's going to have a huge learning curve, and then once you do figure out how to work it, you're not going to need half the features or complexity that it offers. Okay, compare that with... What if you got used a entry level, a basic uh, setup, some sort of basic console that did simple things really easily and you never needed to move on from that? Okay, so there's really two sides of the coin. But the problem is, of course, that if you ask a, a lighting professional, most of them out there for their recommendation, they don't know or they don't understand the really entry level stuff. Okay, because they've blown past that. It's not something they'd ever use in their day to day. I've been there. I know it. And so the question then becomes, um, and when you pick out a software is how simple or how complex do you need to get? So how many lights do you need to control? Basically, you want to make sure technically the software can do that on a technical basis. It can actually control as many lights as you need. And then the more complex answer question, rather, to answer, the, the more difficult thing to answer following up with that is how complex do you want to get with your programming? Because you can start with something very basic. One that I recommend to people all the time is Entex DMX's software, and we'll link to that in the show notes. And the reason I love DMX's is it's dead simple, but it can do some complicated things. You can get up and running with it and learn the software. You can even download a demo um, pretty quick. You buy the box, you unlock the software. You can be controlling lights and doing some cool things fast. It's also really optimized for people running their lights from stage, okay? So that's often my recommendation for good starter software. However, um, and it'll help you create some minimal lighting scenes. However, if you start to look at something like DMXs and you say, well, you know, I feel like there's a ceiling here that I'm going to hit. Like I want to, you start playing with the demo and controlling things and you say, you know what? I want to be able to do more complex programming than this. Then you might want to move up to something like the Light Shark or Entex D Pro or Onyx. So I've got an article called How Do I Choose My First Lighting Console? I want you to check that out. Um, it walks you through some of these steps, some of the things to think about. Because one of the things that I've noticed in teaching people who are new in lighting, and I've noticed this more in the past year than ever before, is that um, a lot of people come into it saying, I only want to do something simple. But then as you play around, as you get working with it, there are some folks who are just natural tweakers, you know, per se, who like to tweak things, like to customize things and make them perfect. And folks like that often will get frustrated with the simpler controllers but also don't mind the extra time that it takes to master something very complex like Onyx, which at the end of the day is not that hard to use compared to the moving light consoles we were using 10 years ago. But 
if you're starting from scratch, it can be a lot. And of course, any console that I cover on the site is also covered in Learn Stage Lighting Labs. Um, one that I didn't mention is the Mac Light Key software. Uh, there's a free version slash demo that, that you can check out as well. And we'll link to that in the show notes too. And it's on that first lighting console page. Anyway, awesome. All right, now Mohammed writes in and he says, actually, I'm a beginner with stage lighting. I have to light a show with 82 lights um, and I have no idea movers and non-movers. I have no idea how to create a good show. The second problem I'm facing is with the light shark console. The Roby Parfect 150 RGBW, it doesn't work and I test the fixtures. It was working in sunlight suite. Okay, so Mohammed, you, you get a couple things here. Let's just walk through it quick. Um, and if you do need more help, I would definitely recommend checking out Learn Stage Lighting Labs, which is where I help people on a more intimate level. Um, I'm able to really get into details about your show, point you to video training that we've got there, and answer any questions that you have after you go through that training. Okay? Um, because you're starting to light a show that's of a decent, a pretty good size, um, but you're still a beginner. So I get that there is a lot for you to learn and probably a lot of frustration and confusion. So the first thing is, um, you know, having to light a stage with 82 fixtures and no idea how to create a good show. Um, I've really, I've got some great videos inside of Learn Stage Lighting Labs inside of a course and action plan called Puntastical that teaches you how to lay out a console, how to light a show, um, with a variety of fixtures and be able to do a great job totally on the fly. So you'll you'll definitely want to check that out. I recommend checking out Learn Stage Lighting Labs and checking that out. The Light Shark, um, with your profile, the Roby Parfect 150 RGBW, um, what I would do is I would try either making your own profile because the Light Shark has a great profile editor. And I apologize, my internet actually went down right as I went to record this, so I can't look up the fixture. Um, <clears throat> but the utilities company says it'll be up soon. Um, so I would either look to get that into a mode where it's just, you know, maybe a four-channel RGBW or where it's a, it's something that another fixture uses that's kind of a generic mode. And then go to the generic manufacturer in the Light Shark and choose the profile that matches it. There's ones for four channel, for a five channel, like a RGBW plus intensity. There's a variety of different ones that you can use in there, and um, th that, that'll work great. Um, obviously, the profile that you've got for the Light Shark either isn't working right, or you don't quite have the Light Shark down yet, um, how to you know select the lights and, and work with the parameters. Obviously, um, from this, you know, short one sentence uh, question, I really, I, I can't tell you what, what exactly is going wrong. But of course, if you join the labs, I'd be able to help you further. So I, I really recommend that. I think it's a great value. Um, and I've had a lot of people lately letting me know about how much they've enjoyed the labs. So you can find that at learnstagelighting.com slash labs. They are the official um, sponsor of our show. And so I, I do appreciate um my sponsorship of the show went through that. But no, seriously, um, really appreciate um, you writing in. And um, I think you'd be a good fit for learning there because it really helps shortcut your way to creating great stuff. Um, and so I, I would really recommend checking out the, the sales page about that and uh, joining us. There's a money back guarantee, so you really can't go wrong um, with that. Wes wrote in and says, um, I recently bought Ntech D Pro 8 
Um, that's the eight universe version because I love everything it can do with the virtual uh, 2D stage. Um, I'm not sure how to set the addresses on the lights to match the DMX outputs in D-Pro. I have 16 PAR64 lights set up and I just set them all to channel one to see what the software can do with them, but I'm not getting any signal to the lights, I guess because nothing is happening when I assign color, etc., to the lights. Can you help me do this? I have other lights set up as well and none of them respond to anything you're doing in D-Pro. Okay, so Wes, the short and quick answer to this is that um, obviously these are PAR64 LEDs, I'm guessing, because you're applying color to them. But you want to go into D-Pro and open up your patch window, okay? And in that, you're going to see a little uh, spreadsheet in there that has the address of each and every light, okay? You want to set those Make sure those match. Make sure what the light says on the back for address matches what it says in D-Pro. Next, if these lights have modes in them and you can check the lights manual for that information, make sure the mode is set to match the mode that's in D-Pro. Um, third, go and check in the D-Pro preferences um, in the settings. Check your DMX output. Um, I don't know what device you have, if you're doing a networked and ArtNet device, or if you're doing an Intec USB device, or even a DMX's box, but you need to make sure that in the settings, it's configured to output correctly to that device, um, and it doesn't just set up by default, and that it is um, set up as well to, um, to, you know, do everything right exactly as your device is configured, okay? Um once you've done that, you'll then want to go if you're using a network device and make sure your network interface is set up right as well, okay? Um, if you do have trouble with that, you can join Learn Stage Lighting Labs and I can guide you along with that or contact NTIC support. Um, that's probably the better one, honestly, because it's their product. They're here to support it to help you verify that all that stuff is set up correctly, okay? Because if that stuff's not set up correctly, the lights aren't going to work. Then... Once you set that up, um, you want to check and make sure that uh, the profiles you have actually match your lights, okay? And so what you're going to do for that is, um, you know, the first thing I would probably do, honestly, is just start a fresh show. Say it's a three-channel LED light. Just patch a generic three-channel light and see if you can get control. If it's more channels than that, then patch some extra dimmers or regular channels and see if you can get control. But I'm guessing um, that the issue probably lies in uh, the setup of the output somewhere because none of your lights are doing anything. Um, and so that's my best guess there. But again, it's one of those things that definitely could be up in the air. Um, it's hard to tell exactly what's going on, but, um, you know, it's going to be one of these things. All right. So I think I'm going to get through all the questions today. Woo, we're getting there, guys. So Lucas writes in and says, I'm looking for a DMX solution to light the congregation at my church. I'm looking into blinders, but I'm not convinced this is the proper solution. This is just to light up the congregation for anyone taking notes or who has a physical Bible instead of a device. Um, and so people can see in the aisles as well. All right, Lucas. So at the end of the day, you really can't um, shortcut this and get what you want. And I know that's not what you want to hear, um, but 
in order for something to work well as house lights for people reading, those lights that are DMX controlled need to be directly over the audience, over the congregation. Having them from a truss pointing out at some angle that's not straight down um, just doesn't give you the results you want. It blinds people, as, as you've kind of guessed and figured out. So that's not the proper solution. So the proper solution, and you probably don't want to hear this because it's going to cost more, is that, but it's worth doing right. Um, the proper solution is getting something installed as your house lighting, as your overhead lights in that space that is controllable. So talking to a systems integrator or an electrician about getting in either, you know, some sort of LED fixture that's dimmable, some sort of conventional fixture, um, just getting control over your house lights. I'm guessing that you currently have something like gym lights or fluorescent lights or something else that's not dimmable, not controllable, and you want that control. Um, but you really, you know, want to do this right because if you go out there and you buy some blinders or some other DMX fixtures and try to hang them and point them in the audience to help people read, um, if they're not coming from directly overhead and they're not covering the whole audience, it's not going to work right and you're going to waste your money and you're not going to be happy with the result. So this is one of those things you just got to do it right. It stinks. It's probably more expensive than you want to spend, but it's worth it. And it's worth bringing in someone in to help you who knows what they're doing because um, there's just so many ways to do house lighting wrong. Um, in the last episode, actually, the interview with Seth Shoemaker, episode 74, we'll link to it in the show notes under your question. Um, we talked about exactly this because there's so many ways to do it wrong. And bringing in someone who's an expert, figure out how to do it right. It may not be as expensive as you think. Awesome. Whew, last question. Adam says, it's Adam. I'm Adam from uh, Cape Town, South Africa. You're enjoy He's enjoying the current five-minute series on YouTube. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and also, Adam, consider joining us on Patreon or having your company do it um, because ultimately, um, I can't do stuff like that without people patronizing it. Uh, you know, it's, it's a ton of work, um, so I'm glad you've enjoyed it and kind of enjoyed a different perspective at lighting than the one that I usually take. Now, your company works mostly in the corporate market and is looking at getting a new console. You're exploring many options. You've been using an M2Go uh, from Martin, now an Onyx console, of course, with two ELO touchscreens for the past four years and are looking to upgrade. We've cut our options down to the MA.2 Core, um, the .2 Core with the fader wing, the .2 XLF, and then the Obsidian NX4. As someone who's only used Onyx, you're apprehensive about moving to MA. Um, just wanted to hear your thoughts on what you would do if you were in my shoes. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Okay, Adam, ready for a little rant? Um, no, not really, um, but <sighs> how should I say this best? The MA.2 series, as much as they sell it as a real MA console, it's really a very crippled, a very held back console, and I wouldn't recommend them at all to you, okay? There's a few use cases where I think they make sense, but I don't think they're what they, they're asking for them, okay? For somebody who's working in live production, if I were you, I would be considering MA2 or now MA3, um, or a used MA2, full size or light or ultra light or even a PC with the command wing. Um, I would only consider those. I would not go into the dot two range 
Because the dot two range, especially when it comes to building effects and and actually, you know, seeing what you're doing on the touch screens, they're pretty terrible. The touch screens are tiny. The effects engine is extraordinarily basic. And overall, it just feels really held back. And especially after being on Onyx, you're going to pay about the same amount of money as you're paying for an NX4. Um, but you're going to get much less console. I really don't like the Dot 2s. I've spent time working on them. I've played with the software and I really don't like them because MA has really restricted what they can do and made them simple, but they're still pretty expensive at the end of the day. So the question then becomes, okay, MA or Onyx? Well, Onyx is going to cost less. I love it. It's a great console. Can it do everything MA can do quite as easily? Not quite, but they're getting there. Um, but the trade-off is that it's an Onyx console is significantly cheaper than an MA. Now, on an MA series, you know, a, an MA2, not a dot, um, but a full two um, console or PC setup, um, the benefits there are, you know, there's some things, especially with effects, that you can do faster than Onyx. Um, and then the other big benefit is that the MA world and MAs are used by a lot of professional LDs. They're well-known in the industry, and they're, they're the biggest console out there, right? They're the most popular with professional lighting designers, and they're also expensive. So you've got all those sides of the coin to look at. I would not go dot two. I would go with a full, full, you know, full-blown real MA that actually runs the MA2 or MA3 software, which the three software is not out yet at this time, um, but some of the hardware is. So I would either run that or I would go with Onyx. And the deciding factor between the two is going to be, are you bidding this thing out to professional LDs or do you have freelance guys that use MA exclusively that your company is going to use? Because if you're bidding it out to people that are specifying MAs in their, their bid proposals, then, you know, it probably makes sense to splurge and buy an MA. But at the same time, Onyx can save you a good bit of money. It can do, I would argue, 80 to 90% of what the MA can do just as easily. And when you'll earn it, um, it can do, it's a very powerful console. Um, in fact, I was actually talking to uh, somebody who owns a company here in the U.S. that owns a lot of consoles, a fairly good-sized regional company. They own a lot of consoles. They own MAs and Onyxes. Why? Because on the biggest shows, you know, the massive shows they do, the LDs are all going to want the MA, right? They're going to want the faders. They're going to want the capability that, you know, they're going to want. Um, that's that's what they're used to running. So, you know, anything that's a, a big show like that that comes in on a bid spec from a designer, you know, they're going to need to provide an MA for that. But for a lot of smaller shows, they say, hey, we're going to use Onyx all day, every day. Why? Because it's literally like a quarter of the cost for the consoles when you compare apples to apples. And so it's not wrong to have a mix of the two. Obviously, you're working with a smaller company. Um, and so, you know, you may just have one console. So it really just depends are there people who will not use Onyx who are just MA designers who you're supplying lighting rigs for? If so, you might have to get an MA or at least make a strategic partnership and get to know somebody in town who's got one if that exists in your area so you could rent it. Because at the end of the day, you know, some designers, they're just going to want the MA because that's what they work with all the time. They do very high caliber shows, etc. But, 
you know, Onyx is a very capable console. It can do big shows and it comes in at about, you know, generally a quarter of the cost. So those are how I would weigh it in. And I would, you know, I would buy the Onyx again if it's just you, your staff LDs, people you train who are using it. But if you're going to be using it primarily on bids where you've got outside lighting designers who um, specify the MA, then you're going to need to provide an MA. But those people generally are not going to take a dot two. Okay, because it's very crippled compared to the full size MA, and I don't recommend them at all. And I'm, you know, pretty hard about that. I'm pretty intense about that because it's unfortunately not as good of a console as a real MA. So, with that, guys, thank you for listening today. 45 minutes. Woo. Awesome. Thank you so much. If you have enjoyed this, guys, and you want to hear this podcast four times a month, then join us on Patreon. Um, in August, I'm going to bounce back down to two episodes a month. One episode will probably be Q&A, and one I'll either do a topic or talk to somebody. And I would love to do them four times a month, but, you know, the cost versus the um, the, the time that it takes is just a little bit much. So I'd, I'd love that support. And, of course, if you guys do need more help with your lighting would, and would love the access to a variety of training videos, check out Learn Stage Lighting Labs. Um, I can't tell you enough about how much it helps people shortcut their way to great lighting. I will see you guys here on the show um, in about two weeks where we're going to talk about actually um, kind of a recap of a trade show I was at lately and also kind of more about the, the question I just answered, which is why choosing the right lighting console or software is so important. I'll see you there. Thanks.